Hey, this is Neil Bawa, the Mad Scientist of Multifamily, and you're listening to the Mailbox Money Show with Bronson Hill. This is the Mailbox Money Podcast, and I am Bronson Hill. As a busy professional, I wrestled with how to grow my income without taking up more of my precious time. I learned that managing real estate, actively trading stocks, or being unable to scale up investments is not passive investing. This is the place where you'll discover new asset classes, develop investing skills, and learn from experts how to become financially free with less work than you thought possible. And now, get ready for truly passive income. All right, so on this episode of the Mailbox Money Show, I've got an amazing guest. I've got Drew Brenneman. This guy has a really unique story. He bought his first duplex at 19 years old, which is super impressive. We get into his story a bit, and the thing that I really like is he has now, he has over 15 years of experience operating large multifamily He found one or two investors, uh, large investors, and was able to just really go and do amazing stuff. So he's kind of a rock star even from a young age, has a lot of insight into real estate operations, both on the multifamily as well as the retail and other sides and commercial side. And then also just, you know, where's the Fed going? What's happening uh, you know, what are some things, some opportunities he's seeing now within real estate? So if you own real estate, you're interested in owning real estate, multifamily, other things, he's got some really compelling stuff to talk about. So let's jump in. Really excited to get in this episode of the Mailbox Money Show. Awesome. So excited to have uh, Drew Brenneman today. How are you doing, Drew? Great. How about you, Bronson? I'm well, man. It's good to uh, connect with you. I, we have some similar uh, stories of, you know, multifamily uh, successes. You did it at a, at a very young age, which I love to hear how somebody does that, uh, uh, you know, being as young as you were, being a teenager, basically getting started. So I think it's super impressive. But why don't you give our, our listeners just a bit of background on kind of how you got started investing and, uh, you know, how you got this business scaled up to 200 million in multifamily. That's really, really impressive. Yeah. I mean, and what's funny is my start was it's in a way so similar to, to yours. It's just somehow it just all happened to me when I was in a lot of it in high school. Uh, so I started this internet business where I was reselling items in these video games. This would have been back in like 2002. So Diablo 2, EverQuest, World of Warcraft were the names of the video games for anybody in their late 30s that might be listening and uh, played them. Well, basically, all I was doing was just reselling items that are within the game so people would be quitting the game and then i'd buy their whole account their whole character in bulk and then i'd just sell the items off one by one this being like swords shields bow and arrows uh like items in the game so like and, in the, like world of warcraft or you'd be like in the game selling a uh, like a digital item basically you'd sell yeah it yeah in world of warcraft actually i only sold gold so it would just be um i would buy gold from people who are quitting and then put it up on ebay or my own website and just resell it um, wow. and so that's, that's it. And so I started making good money doing that where over the course of like a four year period, I made just under a hundred thousand dollars. And how old I, were you? I, I would, I mean, I started it when I was like 15 or 16. So, um, <laughs> did your parents say like, what is this kid doing? <laughs> like, yeah, I was always really entrepreneurial. So they, you know, before that I was a magician and then, um, tried doing other stuff, but this was one that really worked out. So, I don't know. At that point, they were just kind of used to seeing me do it. But then also they're they're both teachers. So they were, you know, they were not they were supportive, but also they did. They didn't want me to like drop out of school or like not go to college. You know, you're, and, you're making more money than they are. Right. So they're probably like so. <laughs> our kids 15, 16. He's making more money than we are as teachers probably or close. To yeah, them. I never. Yeah, I never thought about that. I think they yeah, they were making. Yeah, it was it was might have been close, but that was over a four year period, you know, so okay. if it was all right. in a year. 
yeah, definitely. I would uh, uh, beat them both probably combined, but they were, um, yeah. So no, they were really supportive. And then they taught me some good habits where we weren't like a business family or anything, but my dad in particular always talked about investing in mutual funds and just sort of saving and uh, paying yourself first. Some of these kind of you know, and that that's paying yourself first means like invest your money before you start spending it on other um, junk, we'll say, or liabilities. And so I was hearing that kind of stuff as a teenager, uh, even though I didn't have anyone when people ask like, hey, how did you get this idea? Or was this kind of what your family was like? No, I, I was just the only one like this. No one. And that in a way made it more interesting for me um, doing it as like a trailblazer where it wasn't like I was uh in my grandpa's shadow who had this huge business or something. But um, no, so just, I started just looking into what I should do with the money. And so I read all the, you know, investing books that people read when they could just get started. I read uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Intelligent Investor, Think and Grow Rich. I invested in the stock market and mutual funds uh, just when I was in high school. And, and then I really liked what I was reading in, in a real estate book. Uh, it was called Investing in Real Estate by Gary Eldred. And that's still a book that I'd re I recommend to people now. Like if, if anyone's like at step one of being a active investor, like I'd get that book. It's really simple. And as a, um, as a whatever I would have been, 17, 18 year old at that time, I understood what they were talking about and I liked it. Uh, I liked how it kind of combined like a business and an investment. Sure. Uh, it had cash flow. You pay the loan down. You had tax breaks. I mean, it had a lot of a lot of things you weren't hearing about um, with like the alternatives with the stock stock market. So, I'm from the Milwaukee area, and I went to college at UW Madison. And so, when I went to school there, I decided, okay, I'm going to switch my major to real estate. So I have an undergrad degree in real estate, and then um, my freshman year. I'll buy a duplex and then I'll move into it my sophomore year and then just kind of see what happens from there. And so, so I did that. I bought a duplex my freshman year. Um, I moved into the first floor and rented out the other two bedrooms in there and then so rented out the upstairs. money that you created in your business and in your life, you just yeah. basically yeah. moved in. And how did you qualify for the loan at that age? Do you have a co-signer or do you just kind of. I had income actually on my tax return from the, uh, from the business. So okay. I just, I was able to qualify just by with a normal, you know, full doc loan. Um, okay. I think on the, for the first one, I was able to, it's like, I could have got like a 6% rate or something like this, or if my parents co-signed, I could get a five and a quarter. So they did co-sign on that one okay. just to get a lower rate, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't, I wasn't doing any of those no doc. Cause also this was right. back in, I bought this first one in 2005. So I could have, if I wanted probably just done a loan saying I made a certain amount, but the rates on those were a lot higher. It was like seven or 8%. And okay. so, you know, one of the things I wanted to do from the get go was find a deal that was cash flow positive. And so, I mean, part of that is not just paying anything for your interest rate. So then, um, you know, just that was kind of my fallback plan, like find something that's cash flow positive. Um, and then, yeah. it, you know, and and I'm in Wisconsin. I just thought about you in California. Maybe this isn't a fallback plan if you're in uh, SoCal. Well, it's, but it's, it, it depends. It depends where you are. Obviously, this is something you're able to get into. I want to. You got a lot to your story, so I want to make sure we get into it. And we're just kind of moving a little slower than we need to move, just to kind of get to where we need to get. Um, you have 200 million now in multifamily. So how do you get from one house or duplex to 200 million? Like, how did that happen? How many years did that take? Are you raising the money for this? Like, how did you finance it? Just give us a little bit of the high level of that. 
Yeah, it took me about 15 years. And really how it all started, I bought those first four deals myself. And then uh, I found a partner, someone I was working with. He said, let's go talk to my dad. Maybe he'd want to invest. He did want to invest. And then the three of us, we bought over the next 10 years, $100 million of property. And then I was planning my whole career just working with those two guys. And then actually in 2019, the son in that relationship, he passed away uh, just unexpectedly. And so I started to sort of, you know, knew, okay, well, I'm not going to be growing as much now uh, without the younger partner. I just have the the dad in the deals. And so I, was, I found I had another relationship kind of similar to that that had not really um you kind of explored much another person I met at a property of mine who uh, also had a, a family member who could invest. And then um, kind of the same thing, just rinse, repeat, same sort of business plan I had with the first family I did with the second one. We bought um, another $100 million of property, me and this other family. Um, and then the rest I've, I've just syndicated just kind of traditional yeah. pass the hat type stuff. That, that, that's really interesting. Um, you know, we, we've raised about 35 million for different deals, both in multifamily and other projects. And it's, uh, hear stories about this. Oh, I had one person that invested, which it's a great benefit because, you know, you have, you just have one call, you know, one person calling you, you're having caught, you know, you know, a little bit, we'll have 120, maybe 150 investors total. So we get a lot of people reaching out all kinds of different things. But I guess the downside of it is if something happens with that investor, then you've got to reinvent, you got to recreate yourself. But it sounds like you've been able to do that. You've been very successful at doing that. Um, and so, okay, so that's the money set. And you're you're operating these yourself, permit. You're the asset manager, and then you have a property yeah. manager that helps. Okay. So yeah, I haven't done any co GP deals or anything. This has been, you know, really. I had a I had a partner too, main in the main uh, business on on each of those. Um, but yeah, so I've we do every aspect: find the deal, run it raise the money, sign on the loan. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, what do you see? I want to, I want to talk a bit, um, you know, first of all, well done and all that. And you've been in areas like Phoenix, Dallas and Austin and some, some great areas. Um, what, what are some things that you're seeing in multifamily right now? I think a lot of people are uh, either in multifamily, they're kind of scared because some investments now have, you know, had capital calls or you know, they, they've made it pretty tough. Um, I mean, have you seen any of that or what are you seeing right now? Obviously lending has changed. Are you seeing, you also syndicate as well. Have you seen appetite soften for deals? Have you seen performance suffer in areas? Are you guys doing all long-term fixed debt? Like what are some stuff that are you engaging with the market right now? So I guess high level, all of our deals are uh, fixed rate except for one. Uh, we did a, a, just a debt fund floating rate deal. Um, and that's really on our portfolio the only will only one we'll have to like think about and you know potentially add money to or you know do something with and where the other ones are just um you know there's there's they're all cash flow positive there's nothing to 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 think about where even if they were in like a areas that have pulled back like a phoenix or something i mean they'll still stabilize at above a five cap when we borrowed fixed rate in the threes um but most of my deals were in the Midwest. Um, and then the, the expanding to the Sun Belt's been more recent in the last two or three years. So then um, what I've noticed kind of comparing the Sun Belt and the Midwest, you know, today is there's really not any notable distress in the Midwest in terms of like just a typical what you think of a distress. People were way more conservative there because it wasn't having the crazy rent growth the Sun Belt was having. So, you know, the deals there, there's not uh, there's not like any thought like, oh, there's going to be a lot better deals coming in a year or two in the in the Midwest. And those 
those deals today look look pretty good. You know, Chicago, in Indianapolis, Grand Rapids, those are some of the best markets the last, you know, year and a half, two years now. Um for rent growth in the in the country and for occupancy growth. Um, so those are just holding up fine where I think the Sunbelt, what I can see happening is, you know, in about a year, you know, then finally like the three year floating rate loans people took on in 2021, like those are going to start coming due. And then there's going to start to be, you know, better deals uh, on from the buyer side. So, and then if you're an investor in those deals, I mean, it's going to, I don't, it's, I don't know how it'll depend how good information you're getting from the GP you invested with, if you're going to be able to make a clear decision on if you, if it's worth uh, making a, the capital call or not. Um, you know, like it's some of these deals with what I saw some people pay, I don't know how they ever get out of them, truthfully. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's the challenge is some people, they, they paid, you know, too much or they were too ambitious. And if they had any sort of setback, which usually you do, I mean, you're doing a value add deal. Usually there are things that don't go we're in a plan where renovations go slower, your occupancy dips, something happens. Um, you know, rarely, I guess it goes that, you know, that doesn't happen. You just got a, you know, best in class operator, but that stuff happens. And then you know, a lot of people are finding that now the value and they're trying to refinance is not even where they, what they've paid for the place. So that's obviously an issue and you have all this investor equity that's involved. So it's just interesting to see. Um, so that's good. Well, you have a lot of fixed debt, which is really good. What are what are some challenges that you found or things that you've learned over the years about operations? Obviously, when you're managing single or small multifamily, it's very different than managing, you know, a large, you know, you have some deal, you know, up to a $50 million deal size, like when you're managing a hundred or hundreds of units, like what are some things that you found to be best practices, Drew, as you're doing that? Well, yeah, I guess one insight for multifamily, this is, you know, applicable for anybody investing, whether it's a GP or LP, you know, the real, you know, CapEx number on a property, it's not the $250 a unit a year that um, a lot of people or lenders would underwrite. I mean, it, it's closer to $1,000 a unit a year, depends on the type of property. Um, you know, so let's say on a, you know, a lot of the stuff we have in Chicago, it's larger units, it's newer, nicer. So you'd think there wouldn't be much CapEx on that. And the real number, how those run, it's like a thousand dollars a unit a year on more traditional kind of like a garden style deal, which isn't as nice. It's less than that, but it's still way more than the 250 a unit a year. You know, it could be six, $700, uh, a unit a year. So I think that's one thing that when, um, the more, uh, the more you do this, you see that. And that's, uh, too, when I've, I've saw another, uh, a guy who was involved with Northland, uh, company has billions of dollars of apartments. And he said, he thought the real number was like $2,000 a unit a year, yeah. wow. uh, but they have more like institutional trophy type stuff. So that was the first thing that came in my head in terms of like, so that's like on the number side. And then I guess really the, the main thing that I've learned is you just get, uh, a lot better over time, uh, getting, uh, experience like within a given market. So you're, if it's your first deal, like at all investing, it's going to be tougher than your second one. And it's the same thing when you move into a new market. So this is, um, you know, something that I think about where you kind of got, um, like we bought our first deals in Phoenix just two years ago. And then, uh, now how much tighter underwriting is and having real, expense comps, real rent comps, because we have our own buildings there. We know what property manager we'd want to use for a certain type of building and one we'd want to use for a different type and who we'd hire for the renovation. So 
I guess, you know, operationally things kind of, they can start slowly, but then once you, especially once you're in a market for a while, you, you kind of start to compound your successes, if you will, uh, when knowing who to use, what to do in, for given business plans or situations. Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine that, you know, the more time you spend doing something, the better you get at it. You've had, you know, been able to accumulate all this experience from a pretty young age and you started in pretty young and then found some partners and which is awesome. Um, there's uh, there's some people that I've seen that are younger, been able to get a lot of great experience and be able to really leverage that into into operating. And so, um, so what would you say for someone who is a investor? You know, a lot of people have said, "Oh, multifamily is not going well right now," or maybe their deals aren't going well. But it sounds like you're you're finding markets where deals are going well. And so, what are some things that you you look for? Uh, in specifically for, you know, in particular markets or, you know, from an operating team or things that I guess are special considerations today, considering higher rates, considering underwriting, you know, considerations and things like that. I would think about minimizing variables. So like a lot of the deals, let's, I would assume where you're saying they're running into trouble, they were renovating the property. They're doing a, a floating rate bridge loan that has a three-year term, um, there's a lot that needs to go right for that deal to go as as underwritten. So they need to execute the renovations. They need to be able to execute a refinance or an opportunistic sale. Um, so I think what I would what I've been think what I normally think about, but it's also it's just way more obvious now, is just minimize minimizing variables. So compare that with buying a newer property where your business plan is just the rents should be uh, fourteen hundred, but they're only charging twelve hundred. And we can go in with a fixed rate loan right away at, you know, reasonable leverage. You know, today, like most of the deals we see, they they don't size out for very high loans. It's hard to get hit uh, decent returns. But, you know, most of the stuff we see, it's 55 to 65 percent leverage. Um, but because of that, so you're going to have to take, um, you know, somewhat lo slightly lower returns, you know, if um, but I would think more about minimizing variables, you know, where. You're not going to get burned on a deal if your business plan was it's a two-year-old property, the rents are below market, and we're going to own it for ten years. Like that's, that's maybe you're not going to you're not going to probably make a twenty IRR like the projected uh, renovation deal would have. But if you are are kind of trying to find out what should I be doing today, and you're worried about being in another deal with a capital call, uh, that's that's what I'd be thinking about. Yeah, no, that's that's really huge. I think that's a really great advice. I've I've come to see that. The value of that as well. We've done a lot of uh, more heavy value add stuff, Sunbell, you know, bridge debt type of stuff, and just seeing the value of having deals that are uh, fixed debt, longer term, you know, less uh, leverage, you know, and, and they're not as sexy. Sometimes it's loan assumptions, other things like that, where it's like you're putting fifty percent down, and you know, maybe instead of a eighteen percent projected return, you're at a twelve percent or something. But you know, it's it's it feels safer. It's a different type of investment, different profile. And I've seen I've seen some investors do incredibly well over the long term by by doing that. Um, what would you say, you know, as an investor, you've had um, you know, there's a lot of growth that's had a lot of things we haven't really talked about um, in there. Obviously, you were very hungry and very interested, and you were very curious, and you you did a lot. But what's something, you know, if somebody is a passive investor or interested in being active, what are things that they can do to grow, like to learn more, to grow? You have. Uh, you recommend you recommended a book? Are there other sorts of events or things that you'd recommend that people uh, you know get involved with to try to learn more to grow as an investor? Well, I think going to anywhere where you can be around other people doing it. So whether that's a meetup or a real estate conference or 
uh, some of these mentorship clubs, like that all makes a lot of sense to me. You know, I was, uh, you know, I learned a lot myself just asking questions of other sponsors. And I had a lot of the uh, friends, you know, since I majored in real estate where I could ask, what are you doing at your company or where you could go? I could go up to people who were older that also went to UW Madison easily and ask, what is, how did you set up your company or what's your, how, what is your strategy uh, today? So, I mean, asking questions and whatever that, you know, direction you want to take with that, you know, whether that's going to be people that went to the, were alumni from the same college or, you know, could be more like a meetup type thing. I mean, that's, that's what I'd recommend. Yeah. We talk about that a lot. We talk about the two things that really help you grow as an investor, whether active or passive or networking and education. If you can get in a room with amazing people, it will definitely help you to grow. You'll learn a lot, especially from stories or things that haven't gone well for people. If you can gather from those, it's huge. And then also just, uh, you know, the, so there's the networking, the education components of both of those are, are, are big. Um, yeah, what's uh, I guess that that's I guess how somebody would grow. Any other? Are you involved in any other assets, or is it one hundred percent multifamily? Is it uh, pretty much? Well, I used to do other product types too. You know, I started out in with that first family that I partnered with. We were doing mostly commercial at the start, retail, office, industrial, but we just realized over time that uh, multifamily had the the best the best risk reward profile. Uh, I went back and calculated um, some NACREF data from 1990 to 2020, I believe, was the time cutoff. And multifamily had the highest returns uh, and the least return volatility, so the lowest risk out of all the major product types. Um, and so we just, you know, we we didn't realize it, but it was starting in 2013, we basically were just only specializing in multifamily because we, you know, if it was probably since 2013, I probably did. 25 deals and just three of them were not multifamily, but it wasn't really a strategy or something I was, you know, I'd say announcing until 2021 when it was, we just only do multifamily. So I can talk about other product types if you'd like or anything, but. um, Yeah. 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 No, I think, uh, you know, we see sometimes in recessions that we're, you know, I think we're already in a recession, but it's not official. It's just, they, you know, all the characteristics of recession are there. Um, But self-storage has been one that some people really like or mobile home parks um, do you, and it sounds like you've done some other retail and other things as well. Um, are there other assets, I guess, that you find, you know, from a relative valuation, I, I think it's good to look at, okay, Hey, right now, like, I think, you know, anything from, you know, 2013, 2014, up to like 2020 for multifamily was just, you could do anything. And it was like, everything worked out pretty well because of lower cap rates because of, you know, demand, there's a lot of things that were kind of going by rent growth and things like that. Um, but right now, you know, there are things that are maybe, you know, attractive as well, besides multifamily. What are some areas that you find or assets that you find within real estate or other areas that you find interesting now? Well, I still think that multifamily provides the best, uh, you know, has the most, the, the best debt options, the best tailwinds, uh, demographically, uh, has such a diversified like income stream. So I still think multifamily is, uh, the, the darling of the, uh, you know, real estate world, but, if I had to pick what do I think is the next uh, best product type, I'd actually would say retail properties. And I know that would be a surprise because, uh, you know, retail's not, you, you think of malls and some of these big pop, big box centers, those are uh, almost like a swear word with lenders or investors. But um, the, 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 we, I still own a few small shop retail deals and I have almost never lost a tenant in those where they it's a business where if they're doing well, they don't it's not like an office building where or industrial they need to exp- 
expand and they're going to leave you. They're going to open up a, another location somewhere else. And then they don't want to leave from your. So you, uh, you can end up with stickier tenants and people realize in retail. And I'm talking, I guess, about small shop retail. So like the outlot building on the corner that has, you know, a Panera bread, a Pan, uh, Panda express Verizon wireless, like those kind of tenants, um, and those are the types of businesses we have in our in those deals that I'm that I am in. And so I think that and then you don't have to worry about as much about the operating expenses then in terms of the growth where because these are all leases. So the tenants are reimbursing you for the operating expenses and the real estate taxes and the insurance. It still matters somewhat. It still matters because when you go re-rent the space or you have a lease renewal discussion, if your property taxes and other costs went through the roof, that they're going to be complaining about their gross rent, their total rent number, and why they need a reduction in rent or need, can't handle such a big increase. But uh, yeah, actually, I'd say retail is really interesting because you can have some, you know, if you're thinking also about a recession, like a longer term leases. So maybe a nice tenant locked in for seven or 10 years where by then we'll be on the other side of whatever we're uh, going into here. And then also that's, it's not, uh, you know, industrial multifamily storage. A lot of this is priced for um, not, not priced for perfection exactly, but priced for like a lot of things going right where retail, it's not, uh, it's a little more under the radar. So you're going to see a higher cap rate than those other than in storage in industrial and in multifamily. So that's also why I, I guess I picked that is you're starting out at a higher yield. Yeah, that's great. And no, I think that's all, it's all important to look at, you know, relative valuation, the advantages of the asset. And once you have some experience with it, it helps you to know, Hey, I want to do more of this, or I, or I don't want to do more of this, but I think, yeah, if you can find the right deal, and I think retail is a very interesting space that a lot of people don't do or kind of shy away from because oh, you have a vacancy or different things, but if you find the right deal, it can make a lot of sense. Um, do you have any opinion on interest rates? Are they, you think they're going to come down soon? You think the Fed's going to hold them uh, where they're at or go higher? Or what, what do you think, you know, it's going to be 12 months or, or 24 months? Well, I think it's it's hard to predict the Fed, I guess, where I think, I mean, they are, you know, done with their rate hikes or one or two hikes away. I mean, they, but that really doesn't drive, I mean, any, like a lot of the real estate borrowing, uh, unless it's the, unless it's the debt fund borrowing where all the debt funds were so for plus a spread, which is like correlated almost one-to-one -one with the fed funds rate, but all the other loans and all the ones we do like a five-year Fannie loan, those are all priced off of the five-year treasury. And that's, you know, whether that goes up or down, will have a lot to do with the economy um, and, and just, and so I think if, if someone thinks recession, then rates are going to drop. Um, if some, you know, so I think, um, you know, my personal thought is I think we're, we've been in this band with, uh, you know, treasuries normally being like one something percent, and now we're up to four something percent on the five-year treasury. So, I mean, I can see rates pulling back, um, where treasuries are back into the, into the twos, um, you know, it's hard to say an exact date, but in, you know, on all of our deals, we're doing five-year fixed. I guess this will be the way I think of it. And when I think what rate will I be refinancing into, you know, I think it'll be around a 5% interest rate, I guess, to put it and how, how I've been thinking about it, where I don't think we're going back into the threes for uh, first mortgages, but also I don't think um, we're going to be in the sixes here forever. I feel like it took a lot of effort to get rates as high as they are. And so um, even though rates used to be, you know, a lot higher, I mean, they were 18% when my parents bought their first house. So, you know, I've, I know, I know uh, 
that, but the economy was a lot different then. The GDP growth of America was huge. I mean, we were uh, a huge growth engine for the whole world at that point, and we're we're growing a much slower now. It's a totally different animal. So yeah. Well, Drew, I appreciate you, man. I appreciate all the congrats on all your success, all the things you've done, and you've really developed some some great uh, investments. I mean, really, also some great partnerships. You've had you know a couple times, a couple you know large partners that you've worked with. And you've obviously learned a lot about this, been doing it for years. So I just want to commend all your experience that you have. Uh, if people want to connect with you, how can they reach out to you? Yeah, so I'm on social media, just I think every platform at Drew Brenneman. So you can go there or our company's website, Brenneman Capital, and that's Brenneman.com. And then lastly, I have my own podcast, The Brenneman Blueprint. So and that's a real estate investing podcast. Uh, get into both active investor and passive investor content, you know, like LP, uh, GP, red flags, just have to look for in a sponsor. So, uh, yeah, trying to, uh, you know, help, uh, you know, spread some real estate education out there. So, um, yeah, thanks for having me on Bronson. Really appreciate it. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. I'm excited to be on your show as well. So thanks for being here, man. Yeah. Thank you. All right. So Drew Brenneman has a lot to say about a lot of things. And again, uh, something when you talk to somebody who is a great operator, they typically have, they talk with a great degree of comfort about uh, their asset, right? They're able to say, hey, I like this for this reason, this is what we're doing, this is where we're at. And they're willing to share things that didn't go as well, or things that they would do uh, differently, right? I think when you get to somebody they don't have that, those stories, um, you know, they, they're just not really being honest or, you know, they've been lucky. But I think when you, um, you know, Warren Buffett has a saying, it's, well, it's not until the tide goes out you see has been swimming naked. So uh, from what I can tell, Drew's done a great job as far as you know, really making sure that he is um, positioned correctly, having long-term fixed debt, uh, going for stuff that's not as sexy as far as high returns, but stuff that's just been really steady eddy. Um, so uh, in our investment club, we're doing so, you know, some amazing cash flow investments outside of real estate as well. We have our multifamily that we've got our ATM fund, which is super consistent cash flow. So if you haven't heard about that, we usually offer that a few times a year. Love to uh, fill you in and get you connected on that one. Um, but anyway, I just appreciate you taking the time to educate yourself. It really does inspire me. This is why we do this. It's for you. If you haven't left us a review or put a comment or smash the like button, if you're on YouTube, would really appreciate if you do that. But thanks for taking the time to educate yourself. Look forward to seeing you on the next episode of the Mailbox Money Show. You've been listening to the Mailbox Money Podcast. For more free resources, articles, and videos, go to bronsonequity.com. There you can download your copy of the special report, The Single Best Investment Strategy During and After a Pandemic. None of the information shared here is an offer to buy a specific investment, and this is for educational purposes only. Consult your financial, legal, and tax professionals and use your own common sense before making any investment decisions. Thanks for joining us, and be sure to tune next time for more Mailbox Money.